Welcome to another episode of You Are Not A Frog, How To Have A Courageous Conversation. In this episode, I speak with Becky Zakuna, who is a mediator and a leadership development coach, all about those conversations which we avoid and those conversations which are really, really important for us to have with our colleagues and our teams, particularly as we enter the new ways of working this autumn. Now, this episode was recorded just before the coronavirus lockdown, but I think it's even more pertinent to the challenges that we're all facing today. So we talk about all sorts of things, including why we avoid those conversations that we really need to have. And often it's because we really don't want to ruin the relationship. But so often we assume the wrong intent in people's actions and we stop conversations prematurely because we're worried that the relationship's going to suffer or we've been triggered in some way and we start to tell ourselves, all sorts of stories in our head. So with this conversation, we explore how to have a really empathetic response, how to monitor yourself and other people so that perhaps you can stop the conversation and come back to it at a later date. And we also think about the way that we conflict and our different conflict styles and preferences. The good news is that we're all different. The bad news is that sometimes that really gets in the way of communication. So do have a listen if you want to make sure that you and your team are not just avoiding the difficult stuff. And if you need to have open and honest conversations to prepare yourself for what's coming up in the autumn. So we talk about how to even start to have a conversation, why we've already got a lot of the skills that are needed for this and what your own preferences and conflict style might be. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for GPs, doctors and other busy professionals in high stress jobs. Even before the coronavirus crisis, many of us were feeling stressed and one crisis away from not coping. We felt like frogs in boiling water, overwhelmed and exhausted. But this has crept up on us slowly, so we hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm. And let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices. Stay and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog, and that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your own destiny and to craft your life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Morris, GP, turned executive coach and specialist in resilience at work. I work with doctors and other organisations all over the country to help professionals and their teams beat stress and take control of their work. I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control to survive and thrive in our work and lives. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? then it's time to get your life back. And that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60 minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. So it's really great to have with me on the podcast, Becky Dakuna. Becky, welcome. Did I pronounce your name right? You did, Becky Dakuna. That's right. Excellent. Becky, do you want to just introduce yourself? Tell us what, you know, what's your background and, and what do you do now? 
So at the moment, I help leaders and teams to have courageous conversations. So I run a company called Courageous Companies, and I do a, a range of things. I mediate um, to help teams to have courageous conversations they might otherwise avoid. I do training and coaching and facilitation to help yeah, leaders and teams to talk about performance or conflict or change thickness all kinds of things that they might find it difficult to talk about and I also do some work around uh, helping people to talk about their strengths and their differences so one of the tools I use is Lumina which is a psychometric tool Lumina Spark and in terms of my background I started out as a social justice campaigner and then I discovered mediation and it was quite life-changing um, and I became a workplace mediator and then went on to do a few leadership roles in charities and small businesses. And I guess my interest was in, I, I saw a lot of organisations doing great stuff in the world, in the public sector and the charity sector in particular, but their culture often didn't live up to that mission. So often staff were unhappy, burnt out, lots of conflict, lots of stress. And I wanted to kind of bridge that, I guess, first as a consultant and then as a leader to build kind of healthy culture and values organizations and it, that experience I guess I had a lot of experience of managing through change and crisis and uncertainty and then I'm putting some of the mediation stuff and consultancy stuff into practice I guess and then more recently I, I started working for myself yeah I now bring together that leadership experience with the consultancy experience Brilliant. So you say you've had a lot of experience sort of leading people through change and uncertainty and in crises. So I'm really interested in that for our listeners, because I think in, in healthcare, there's a lot of change going on at the moment and actually a lot of uncertainty. And, and as we speak, um, the coronavirus outbreak is sort of starting to hit and, you know, everyone's incredibly worried and incredibly uncertain about what's going to happen. When you have those conversations about uncertainty, you know, what exactly are people wanting to talk about or needing to talk about? Do you mean as, as a leader, what as kind of staff wanting to talk about? Well, what have you experienced in, you know, when you've been working either in the NHS, I know you've worked in some hospitals or working in organisations, uh, you know, are the conversations different that the leaders are having to different to the sort of staff on the ground? And what's is the need for a mediator like you to come in? What, why are people finding it difficult? Well, I think, I guess one of the challenges is that, and I see this a lot in the NHS, I guess, and in hospitals where I've worked, either as a mediator or a trainer or a coach, um, there's so much pressure now. There's a kind of constant or almost a constant state of change that people are, are in, but there's also huge pressure on resources. So there, there's a lot of stuff that's gone out the window that would equip people to work well in that situation of change. So learning and development, budgets being axed, for instance. And so, and I guess what goes out the window then is often, and often the reason I need to come in further down the line is that there isn't much time or care put into the process of dealing with change. And in my experience, that's as important or more important often than, than the outcome. It's something about, you know, the how, not just the what, that, that if, that people have need to be treated with maybe respect and dignity and empathy uh, while they're going through kind of uncertainty or change and that often that can kind of go out the window because of time pressures. So people sort of not communicating, not being empathetic to the people that are experiencing the change just because they're so busy and they almost forget to do it or they can't do it? Yeah and I also think people are just so so stressed and kind of time poor and then 
also probably quite conflict avoidant and anxious around that, anxious around kind of having any conversations about uncertainty and change. And that then means they're not really, they're, they're in avoidance mode and they're not putting themselves in other people's shoes. They're not taking the time to kind of listen. And I think in terms of your question around kind of, I suppose, I suppose in terms of how I've approached it as a leader myself and how I would equip other leaders to manage through times that are uncertain or where there's a lot of change is for me there's a few kind of crucial kind of ingredients I guess one is like listening and curiosity and just making lots of space and time for people to voice their concerns and their fears and it might sound kind of counter to what I was saying before about people being time poor but in my experience that means that time is saved in the long run because if people are heard at that crucial point and they're allowed to kind of express their fears, their anger, their anxieties, their upset, then it's not going to lead to kind of complaints further down the line or sickness, absence, or more conflict and grievances and things. So listening and curiosity, and then with that empathy, I guess emotional intelligence comes with that. So, and how people are feeling and what they might need. And I can say a bit more about that in a moment, but for me, feelings and needs are, are crucial. And then there's something about honesty and transparency. And even if it's uncertain times to just be honest about what is certain and what is uncertain and give respect to people enough to be honest in that way. But it's tough because all of those things, I think, take courage. That's what my business is about, I suppose, courageous conversations. And it takes a lot of courage to say uncomfortable things, not knowing how people will react and to hear those reactions takes a lot of courage. There's a vulnerability and a risk involved. But I think it pays off because it, it leads to engagement, it leads to empowerment. It means staff will, or others, will kind of help co-create the change rather than just being kind of passive, being done to. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the whole thing about being courageous and having those conversations, we don't because we're so worried about upsetting people. And I think in healthcare as well, we think we need to have the answers. So if we say that this is coming up and I'm uncertain and someone has a really bad reaction and doesn't agree with us, we feel we've got to fix it or we've got to come to a conclusion. And then so often we don't say anything because we're worried that there is no conclusion or we can't fix it. So why are you saying that actually for most people it's enough to be heard even if they get angry and cross, eventually they'll they'll come around and you don't have to fix it or solve their problem or say, or get them around to your point of thinking. It's just that expression of anger and frustration yeah. is almost normal in a change. Yeah, absolutely. I think in my experience, I've been mediating now for nearly 20 years. And so working with some of this really like heightened emotion. And in my experience, when people are experiencing anger, if they're being, they've heard a bit of news that they're, upset or worried about or angry about or they're angry as you say maybe with the uncertainty for me the most important thing is to I think of it as kind of three A's so to acknowledge acknowledge the the feeling that's being expressed so you're feeling really angry about this or you're feeling really frustrated or you're feeling really worried accept it that in other words don't try and change that just accept that and because it, it's normal maybe even say can completely in this situation it's completely understandable that you would be feeling that and then ask so be curious tell me a bit more about what you're feeling what you need right now so rather than trying to fix it work to understand what it is that person actually needs and I think that even just the acknowledgement of strong feeling like naming it noticing and naming it I think makes a huge difference and the shoulders kind of go down 
just to, for someone to know that they've been heard, but an empathic kind of deep hear listening, rather than trying to change that, which I think is what usually people do to kind of avoid it being difficult, kind of try and brush away that uncomfortable emotion, but instead to hear it, it means the shoulders go down and then it moves people from that heightened emotional space into a more logical kind of problem solving space. It might take a bit of time and empathy is not instant necessarily, but it's amazing the power of then that empathy, I think, to move people into a space where they can then think rather than us having to solve it for them or the medical professional having to solve it for them instead to ask that person or that patient, what do you need or what, what ideas do you have? What could be done? What can we do about this? And I think usually people have the answers themselves. Can I just ask, Yeah. how do you teach people not to respond in an angry manner themselves? Because mm. I think that's the problem, you know, you're in a chimp comes out when someone else is cross with you, something you've just said, and you have a very angry reaction, your one's first natural response is not to be empathetic, is to just go, yes, but yes, but yes, but and argue your case. What tips do you have to help people do that then? Be empathetic rather than arguing? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's about um, a non-defensive response to criticism. So I think the first thing that we have to do is press pause on our own stuff. And important to say that for me, empathy doesn't mean we have to agree. Something about just working to listen first and understand what the other person's feeling and needing and to try and stay non-defensive and hold back our own reactions. So we're pressing pause on our own stuff. And for me, the most important technique in this is summarising or reflecting back what we've heard, because that's a way of making sure we do listen and showing that we listen. And I think it's hard to react when we actually work hard to listen to the other person. It, it starts to bring down our own potentially as well, because we start to connect with the other person. So I'd want to summarise first. So you're saying... And whatever the person said, what they're feeling, what they're needing, anything that's important in what they've said, check we've understood, ask for more information if we need it. So make sure we've heard first. And then when we've done lots of good listening and we've probably built some trust with the person because we've listened so well, at that point, the next step for me would be to say, is it okay if I respond? And then if there's any points that I could agree with that the person has said, anything I want to kind of take responsibility for or acknowledge or agree with, that's the time to do it. That builds a kind of bridge and shows that we're willing to take on board feedback. And then for me, the final step would be saying where we don't agree. And if there's feedback we need to give to the person, if we need to express our own feelings, frustration, whatever it might be, disappointment, that's the time to do it. But we're doing it from a place of understanding first what the other person's coming from. And is that often all at the same time or could this be a series of meetings where you just listen in one of them and then you come back and, you know, because I guess some people, if they are really angry and they haven't come down from that anger, is there any point in telling them the counter argument and your own thoughts or not? Well, a couple of things on that. One is I'd say I agree with you. If they're still angry, I think, well, for me, that's an indication that they're probably not feeling heard enough yet. And I'd probably want to just slow it down and say, even say, is there something I'm not hearing? Or or is there something I'm missing? Or what would enable you to, what would kind of reduce your feeling of anger right now? Just some, because there's probably something that we're not getting that's meaning they're still angry. And then, but if, I, I do agree that sometimes a bit of time and space might be needed. It might be that we need a bit of time and space as well to, I'd want to check, do you feel like I've heard you? Maybe, and then ask, maybe we could reconvene when we've both had a chance to reflect a little bit and I can come back with a more kind of thoughtful response. Yeah, so that's giving that time and space for your amygdala reaction to, to, to yeah. go away and you to start thinking out of your human thinking brain. 
And it just yeah. strikes me, all that you say is just very like the way we're taught to consult, actually, as doctors. So we're taught to listen and then express empathy and then summarise. So it's stuff that we can do anyway. And then just be curious. I guess the way it's different is that when a patient comes to you with an illness, it's very rarely your fault. <laughs> yeah, you haven't given them a broken leg or, you know, so you can, we can depersonalize it. It doesn't feel like it's personal against us. Whereas if you're working in an organization or a surgery, you say where, where things have got to change and you've made that decision that things have to change and they're really cross, often it can get quite personal. How do we get away from feeling that we're being personally attacked? Are there any tips to do that? So for me, the crucial thing is still around kind of curiosity, because in my experience, if something the way that I kind of manage myself when I start to either feel personally attacked or start to judge the other person for bad, usually I make myself kind of slow it down and ask some curious questions, because I know that if I ask enough of those questions, I'll, I'll reconnect again and get to what's really going on for that person because the chances are they might be speaking in a way that's aggressive and and is about and feels personal but actually I try and remind myself that it's an expression of unmet needs so in that moment what is it they're feeling and what is it they might be needing and I suppose an important theory in conflict resolution which is a couple of things one is that feelings and emotions are a really important messenger in that they point to our unmet needs in that moment and that needs are really it's really crucial to kind of understand our needs or each other's needs because those needs are a route to resolution and to go well-being work job satisfaction etc happy life so if but often people act out of when needs are not being met so it could be that if somebody's feeling angry because they they have a need for maybe honesty or autonomy or respect or something like that and they think they in that moment they're not getting that in that moment they're going to often act in a way that's could it might feel quite kind of unreasonable but it's an express it's all about trying to get their needs met even if they don't know that's what they're doing so i try and get it back to kind of what might they be needing and then in that moment i suppose if it's feeling like a a personal attack i think it's also important to just recognize that we have feelings and needs as well and what might we be feeling in that moment and to try to bring some emotional intelligence to that moment and that takes kind of I think a lot of practice and intentionality I after maybe after a difficult situation with a patient doing a bit of reflection and thinking what was going on for them what was going on for me what was I feeling why what was I needing and then next time we might be a bit more aware of it in the moment and more able to kind of take a deep breath and try to pause before we react so one thing that I really struggle with and I know Jane Gunn talks about this a lot, is delaying the conversations that need to be had. And I think often when I'm in the conversation, it's fine, but I don't bring stuff up and I just sweep it under the carpet or I I ignore it because I genuinely don't know how to bring it up sometimes. What do you teach in terms of being courageous about how to even start to have these conversations? Are there any tips or things that you would say to, to go up and say to someone or... I, get, I know it must be, di- it's obviously different on, in every context, but what's worked? I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops 
top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. So it sounds like there's a couple of things there. There's one a question around kind of how to kind of get ourselves to muster the courage to have the conversation in the first place, mm. but then there's how to start it. Yeah. Or how to initiate the conversation. The first thing around must, mustering up the courage, I think some of it is, I think, is working out our emotions around it. And what are we worried about? What is it that's stopping us from having the conversation? I also think there's something about the, the doing a bit of logical thinking around analysis around it and thinking sometimes I think it's about working out kind of what are the best and worst case scenarios so what's the if you don't have the conversation what's the best case scenario and the worst case scenario and then what's most likely if you do have the conversation what's the best and worst case scenario and what's most likely and then it's and even writing that down or talking it through with somebody to work out which is the best route and I do however think it's also useful to think in terms of the kind of courageous bit I I often encourage people to notice where they're resisting something and then to do it, you know, to move towards that, like move towards the thing they're resisting. Because I think usually the stuff we resist is the most important stuff. And it's weighing up. I think you talked a little bit about this with Jane in the recent podcast that it's it's making a kind of judgment call around how important is the relationship and how important is the issue. If both of them are important, then it's something that probably needs to be discussed. If if, you know it's an important issue and that the relationship isn't important it might be that there's something else you can do rather than having that courageous conversation but yeah move, move towards the things we resist i'd say and then in terms of how to start the conversation i think a couple of things i suppose one is i'd want to be quite kind of upfront at the beginning and say to the person there's something difficult i want to talk to you about and name if it is uncomfortable for you as well say you you know i might want to say if it was me having the conversation I'm feeling a bit uneasy about it and I appreciate you might be as well. And then naming, so kind of getting that out there that it's going to be a bit difficult, but you, and then naming your intention and just explaining what your intention is in having the conversation. It might be the reason I want to do this, even though it's difficult, is that I really value our relationship and I don't want this to get in the way of it. Or I really want to nip things in the bud early because, yeah, because I don't want things to escalate. Whatever it is, just name that it's coming from a good place. And then the only, the final thing I suppose I'd say in terms of initiating the conversation is for me, it's important to check with the person that it's a good time and place to, mm. to do it and to give them a, a chance to say, actually, it's not. I've got a lot of things on my mind right now or I'm about to run off to another meeting. So could we reschedule it? So long as it's not a kind of endless avoidance tactic, give yeah. them a bit of choice in when, you, when and where you have the conversation. Yeah, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because... I guess you don't want to catch someone right at the end of surgery because they've got loads of stuff and visits to do but then you don't want to say oh, there's something I need to talk to you about it's really awkward and you know I, I really value our relationships I need to talk to you about and they're like well what is it what is it you need to tell me yeah <laughs> so yeah, it's, even, it's even when you bring it up let alone have the conversation I, yeah absolutely and it's going to probably be a bit of a shock and a surprise in a way what, however you do it it's going to there's going to be that moment of ah, oh, and then little moment of dread in the other person and then a lot of people wouldn't want to wait in suspense. They'll want to just know what it is. But then I'd see it as the start of a conversation and, you know, say the bit that needs to be said right then and then come back to it if, if you need to when there's more time. I mean, the only other thing I didn't say but that I think is really important is preparation. I think doing reflection beforehand, both for what I often teach people in nonviolent communication as a good tool 
to think through kind of what objectively what happened what was the behavior that was difficult or the what but to do that as objectively as possible so it's not taking out any evaluation and making it something that anyone would agree to anyone that kind of observed it or saw it would agree so really objective observation and then the impact on you so what you're feeling or what you felt as a result the third thing is what you need thinking about human needs psychological needs and then the fourth thing is any requests for the future like what you'd like to be different and it's important that that's something that people can do ideally rather than not do something that's kind of they can say hopefully they can say yes to so just even if you wouldn't use that model just preparing in that way can be useful and then i'd always try and do it for the other person so just to think through what might particularly the feelings and needs what might theirs be because you can then go into it kind of with openness and empathy often when i find myself sort of giving some difficult feedback or saying something to someone <laughs> i then find myself going oh but it doesn't really matter no, don't worry i mean it's completely understandable and almost having this sort of fawning response that um ebony allard was talking about the fight flight or fawn which i've never heard of before but i think i don't know whether that's a, a particularly english thing that will bring something up and they go oh, but it doesn't doesn't really matter i mean it's nothing really and it didn't really upset me and just thought i'd mention it type thing and, and just really minimizing it have you seen that happen before yeah yeah the, the i see that a lot and i see it i see avoidance happen a lot and then i see that happen a lot that fawning i i describe it as i don't know if you've come across conflict management styles there are five different conflict management styles all oh, right no um, i haven't uh, Ron Craybill style matters is a good kind of place for people to go if they're interested you can do kind of a quite a short questionnaire which is really useful beginning I mean it's it's just kind of indicative but there are five styles in conflict so there's avoidance harmonizing or accommodating which is what I think you're describing yeah, before. Yeah. there's mm. compromising directing and then collaborating and for me, the key in courageous conversations is to try to move to a collaborative space, which is about win-win. It's about looking after the relationship and getting your, staying assertive, getting your own goals and needs met. So the, the fawning is an interesting one because I, I guess it, when we accommodate, and I think a lot of people will, will relate to that fawning or accommodating in conflict, it, it's often because we care about the other person and we're, and it's important to reflect on that. I think, why is it we've gone into that mode? And it's probably that we're, it could be that we just don't want, we don't want the fallout. We don't want, the, we want to go back into avoidance mode. We want it to go away. It could be that we just have a really strong need for harmony in relationships and we get flustered when people are upset. It's probably that we, yeah, we care about the person and we want to please them. We want them to be happy and not upset. And, and I, so I think, it's something about again it comes with i think understanding our style working out what triggers that shift why why do we go into that mode if we were having the conversation the example you gave where you start you start to have a conversation and then you hear someone's response and then you start to say anyway it doesn't matter it's completely fine what's triggered that shift and what's behind it is it because we've heard a bit of emotion in the other person and we're wanting to shut that down and what's that about is it is it because we've started to doubt ourselves and think maybe this isn't important after all, is it that it's our own self-esteem that's kind of wobbling? So getting to that kind of why. And then for me, it's about, I guess, practicing collaborating, but in a, a safe spaces as we can. So in the start, in the Ron Crable's stuff around style matters, he talks about calm and storm conditions. So calm when there's the early stages of a conflict we might try and have a conversation when things are quite kind of lower stakes and then the shift to storm conditions when it's the stakes are a bit higher there's more emotion it's escalated 
And if we can practice collaborating in the calm conditions, I think it will better equip us for the scary conditions where, you know, where it's meant for me. And it's about how can we stay assertive? How can we, and it takes practice, I think, and self-awareness, like how can we hold fast to what we thought and care about even when we're wanting to fawn or accommodate. And does it work? Have you seen people that have been in massive conflict against each other, massively hurt by each other, manage to find a common ground and manage to get through it and build that relationship back? Yeah, all the time, like on a weekly basis, I see it. And because for me, there's so often, I think, it comes about conflict gets to that point because, and it's escalated, partly because of avoidance. And so things have become bigger in people's minds. And also because I guess it, where it's not dealt with, where the conversation hasn't happened in a timely way, there's layers upon layers that are put on top of those, what actually happens. So it's often layers of interpretation. Mm-hmm. We often assume intent where it wasn't there. So a lot of my work, I guess, is about helping people when I'm mediating, is helping people to separate out the intention, because it probably wasn't a person probably didn't intend harm but the intention from the impact because the impact is probably very real help people to acknowledge the impact on each other but also acknowledge where it wasn't intentional but yeah definitely for me these all of these tools are really quite transformative because even in a, a lot of my work I might go into a team where there's so much mistrust they can't even look at each other or it's hard to come in a team in a room together or it could be two individuals where there's been a complaint. And through, for me, these tools kind of just rehumanize people. They help them to reconnect. There's also something about process again that, and I think of it in terms of, I think it's really useful in terms of thinking about patient complaints as well, that even if somebody has a kind of a really serious or and maybe legitimate complaint, or maybe it's not, maybe it's that their complaint is unfounded, that the process of how that complaint is heard and dealt with will often lead to the person being willing to put the complaint aside, even if they don't agree with the outcome. Does that make Mm. sense? Yeah, 100%. We all know that, you know, if complaints handled badly, they they escalate, don't they? But it just, you know, and I I think we're so frightened of having these conversations that we leave them and if and then what happens is grievances get put in and big complaints and that's never good it's much better just to sit down I absolutely love what you just said that we need to separate intention from impact because very rarely people do things with the sole reason to piss you off I mean that doesn't you know someone might have dumped a visit on you and which made you late and made you miss the important dinner that you had planned that wasn't their intention was to cause you grief and to make you miss something probably their intention was to lighten their own load and they were worried about saying or whatever but we so often assume the wrong intention so do you tell people that they should just go and check the intention out or is that a bit too threatening yeah well I guess I try and help them to usually I'd maybe ask them questions that would help them to think about what might the other person's intent have been and to kind of open up the possibilities. So it might be that I'm here, I might say, okay, so you've said that you you think it was deliberate. You think they did this deliberately to kind of cause you upset or irritation or pain, whatever, inconvenience. What if any are the other possibilities? Mm. Um, What if it was something else? What might that have been? And then what would that be like if that wasn't their intent? What would that be like? that was intent what would that be like as well recognizing that's possible and then if it's the two people having the but then yeah absolutely it's then about kind of asking them how can you find out 
what will enable you to check this, to check what you've kind of assumed with them around their intentions. And if I was facilitating that, often those are the moments of real breakthrough and understanding and relief where somebody describes what they thought the person had intended. And I have to ask quite difficult questions in there. Like sometimes it's just asking directly, why do you think they did that? Can you name it? What's your worst fear? And then they answer that. And then I give the other person a chance to respond and say, you know, did you know that? Was that what what was going on for you? What were you intending? But in all of that, it's still really important that the other person has heard the impact and hopefully Mm. heard it and empathised with it. Because even if they didn't intend it, the person will probably still need to have that empathy. Absolutely. I can imagine that you would be horrified if you heard what other people thought you had intended by your actions but often we minimize what we think the impact of our actions actually are so it's just getting that awareness isn't it yeah yeah definitely sometimes it's about personality style and working style because i find quite often where i'm coming into a team that's in conflict and maybe facilitating or doing team rebuilding or something quite often there can be a lot of conflict for instance caused by those that are, if there's some that are more extrovert in the team and some that are more introverted. And though it might be that those that are, I had a recent case that was quite interesting where for a long time there was this dynamic where you had a few quite talkative people in the team who, as extroverts often like to, they wanted to talk stuff through, kind of vocalise stuff that's, you know, to help their own thought processes. And they weren't really thinking about the impact on those that were maybe in, more introverted. And those extroverts were worried or assuming that those that were more introverted were unhappy when they weren't. So they'd ask, how are you? And the introverts might say, I'm fine. And they'd assume from that that there's a lot more going on that they're not telling me. And then you have the introverts who were getting annoyed about the noise and not able to concentrate. But they were also worried because they knew that they were being kind of maybe judged for not being so demonstrative and not talking about their feelings so much. But it wasn't that they were holding stuff back. You know, they just, if they say they're fine, it's just because that's all they want to say at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes it's just about getting people to talk about those differences and there'll be moments where there's just relief that, oh, I didn't realise that's what it is. Yeah, Um, yeah. That's so key. I've seen that with teams where, well, if we describe it in Myers-Briggs terms, I know some people know Myers-Briggs, you know, if you have a J preference, so you like structure, you like to know where you're going, you like to know the steps that you're going. And then you've got someone else who sort of knows where they're going and we'll go around about houses. We'll get there, but often last minute and whatever, that's really stressful for someone that likes to know. And they're like, you're not taking this project seriously. I can't rely on you because I'm not getting stuff to the last minute. And the the other person's going, well, why are they being so ridiculously anal about this this is just crazy so I think you're absolutely right a lot of conflicts is just our different preferences but it's very difficult to see when you have a I have a quite a high intuitive preference so I like to think about big picture and stuff like that and sometimes in meetings when someone just goes straight to the detail and oh well how's that gonna work I can't you know and criticizes detail it drives me up the wall and I think why can't they just go with the ideas and let's brainstorm and do this and, and they're going oh well you know that's not going to work because at 3 p.m on a Friday we do this and blah 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 it's like ah Yay. actually we need people like that we need people like me we need people who are very good at the detail because that's the way teams function much much better but it causes conflict and we assume the other person's just being difficult or annoying probably to just to annoy me 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're spot on that both the JP in Myers-Briggs terms and the NS are kind of real causes of conflict in organisations. And, and definitely we kind of assign intent to a lot of that stuff as well. And think, because we can't, it's hard to see outside of our own kind of experience, isn't it? And our own kind of preferences. And I, I guess for me, the challenges to, I think a lot of people in a lot of organisations look at, they might do a psychometric or something like Myers-Briggs and they, they're aware of their differences, but they haven't kind of moved beyond that awareness to empathy and adaptability. Yeah. And to have, again, courageous conversations around in those meetings, what is it that bugs you or and what would you like to be different and what could you do to support others that are different to you? So kind of really getting people to, yeah, empathise and then be willing to adapt. Yeah. And wouldn't it be great if we could all have, have those conversations in the calm phase before it gets yeah. to the storm phase. Before we've avoided it. for We've been working with that person for five years and they've peed us off since we started actually yeah. if we had just had a conversation at the beginning about oh that's that's an interesting approach to your work yeah actually might have been better okay so Becky, we're sort of running out of time but what would you say to someone who knows they need to have a courageous conversation with someone because they've been working for them a while and, and lots of things have happened that maybe been swept under the carpet but making them a bit miserable what three top tips would you give them for doing this okay so th- three tips on how to have that courageous conversation. I think the first thing for me would be to do some preparation beforehand and think about what are you wanting to get out of this conversation? Yeah, it's almost doing some pros and cons and thinking about the costs of of the conversation, but the costs of not having it as well. And to think about what your feelings and needs are in the relationship and around this issue, and then to do a bit of reflection on what the other person's feelings and needs are as well. So you go in kind of ready to have an open but empathic conversation, good preparation. And then for me, the, the second thing is around being honest and vulnerable. So, and there's a risk in vulnerability and honesty, but to be willing to actually share that, to talk honestly about the impact on you, your, again, your feelings and your needs, that's going to be crucial to build a connection with the other person. So the other person actually cares enough to want to do something about it. If we can have a conversation on that level, rather than just chucking blaming statements back and forwards, we're going to go a lot further. So honesty and vulnerability. And then for me, the, the third thing is around probably blocking two things together, but it's listening and empathy. It's being willing to, after we've shared what we want to share, be willing to be challenged on it, to give the other person space to respond, to say what their interpretation was, and working hard to listen out for how they're feeling as well. Great advice. Thank you so much, Becky. So, Becky, if people wanted to get hold of you, how can they do that? So, I've got a website which is courageous.co. So, it's courageous companies, but courageous.co. Or they can look me up on LinkedIn, follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Becky Dakuna. It's hard to spell both my names, but I guess they can get that on there. I'll put it all in the show notes. Yeah. (laughs) Or they can email me. People can get on my mailing list if they're interested in that. But it's Becky. B-E-C-C-I-E at courageous.co. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much. Put all of those in the show notes. And Becky, I'd love to have you back another time. I'm quite interested in these personality differences and mm-hmm. you know how we can assess that and how we can work better with people who do have a different personality profile from us. So will you come back on the podcast some another time? Yeah, I'd love to. That would be brilliant. brilliant. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Have a great day. Goodbye. Thanks, Rachel. 
Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.